From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Leipsch. My guest today is Rosella Kenoshimeg. She's a member of the Ojibwe First Nation on Manitoulin Island in Canada. She's a spiritual leader on the island and for the last 25 years has worked with the Anishinaabe Spiritual Centre there. The centre is a work of the Jesuits of Canada and through its ministries and education programs, it aims to honour Indigenous spirituality and the Catholic faith. Through its three-year ministries program, participants receive Catholic diaconate training steeped in Anishinaabe spiritual practices. Rosella was instrumental in incorporating these practices and ceremonies into Catholic services at the center and across the island. For her, Anishinaabe and Catholic traditions go hand in hand. Both energize her to serve the community on the island, and her wisdom is widely sought. As she told me, when something happens, whether it's a baby's birth or a loved one's death, she's one of the first calls that people make. My conversation with Rosella traces the many contours of her ministry on the island, sharing times of joy and pain. We talked about difficult histories and the need for healing in many indigenous communities in both Canada and the US. Next Monday, October 11th, is Canadian Thanksgiving, or Indigenous Peoples' Day in the United States. These holidays come at a time of deep grief for many Indigenous communities. Over the course of the summer, the remains of more than 1,300 Indigenous children were found on the grounds of former residential schools in Canada. Both the Canadian and U.S. governments forced Indigenous children to attend these schools, where children were forbidden from speaking their languages or practicing their cultures. They were vehicles for assimilation, and these residential schools have fueled ongoing cycles of trauma in Indigenous communities. Rosella and I talked about this history and how it impacted her family. It was, at points, heartbreaking. Rosella also shared profound personal experiences of God. And that is what has stuck with me most from this conversation. Talking to Rosella, I felt I was in the presence of someone who has an intimate and yet expansive relationship with her creator. That rootedness just radiates off of her. I cannot thank Rosella enough for sharing of her stories, her teachings, and her insights this week. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rosella. Rosella Kenoshmeg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I wondered today if we could just start with telling us a little bit about yourself, telling our audience your, your background. Okay, well, first I will give you my official Ojibwe greeting. And, and I will do it in my language because that is part of our protocol. So, uh, Rosella Nishnikas, Nandwekwe Nishnikango, Odawa Ojibwe Kwendao, Beneshin Dodem, Mokwan Danadmak, Doganing Wikwemkung, Nadomnesing Donjiba, Bojo, Bojo. No translation. <laughs> I am the youngest of a family of 10. Wow. Plus my mother adopted two more younger than me. But now there are only three of us that are remaining that are still alive. 
We all attended residential school, except my oldest brother, who was not accepted because he was blind in one eye. I am married for 53 years now to one man. I have five children, <clears throat> seven grandchildren, and one great-grandson. I am a registered nurse. I still have my registration. I'm thinking of letting it go in the near future. I have my BSCN, and I have 53 years of nursing experience, mostly working with First Nation communities, but, but also I have a little bit with... Um, a little bit of hospital experience on a medical unit, psychiatric unit. Worked in the nursing home a little bit. Um, that's on our on our First Nations community. Back in <clears throat> 1996, I was the recipient of an honorary doctorate in sacred letters from Regis College, the School of Theology. I was mandated by Bishop Plouf as a diocesan order of service, or DOS, we say, and that was in the year 2000. And I was honored with pro, and I don't know if I can say this, I think it's in Latin, pro ecclesia e pontifice, which means for church and pope medal, also known as cross of honor medal, an award that's confirmed by the Pope to the laity for distinguished service to the church. That's a long list of accomplishments, including grandchildren and great-grandkids. That's wonderful. So you started with uh, a greeting, um, a traditional Ojibwe greeting. Um, can you tell us that's a little... A bit, a little bit about the the community of Manitoulin Island, the community that the that you live in. We're on the. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> in English. It's called Wukwemakong Unceded Territory. It's on the e eastern end of Manitoulin Island, and it stretches. Um, oh, I don't know in kilometers, but about fifty miles. I'm still in the old <laughs> 50 miles long, and, and it's, uh, I don't know how wide, maybe 15, 20 kilometers, like in width, say. <clears throat> it has a population of about uh, 6,000, but uh, not everyone is on the reserve. Uh, maybe our unreserved population is about 4,000. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your work with the Anishinaabe Spiritual Center. Um, you are a leader with um, this center, which is a work of the Jesuits of Canada. Um, but I want to ask, how did you first encounter the Jesuits? As a child, I didn't know that, that they were Jesuits, you know, like I, we just saw a priest come on Sundays and it wasn't until much, much later that I read you know, that I found out that these were Jesuits and they've been here, they've been here for here for a long time. Eh? They're the only ones, the only order, I guess, that's been here. Eh? 
And it was by, uh, I suppose, by going to uh, um, Anishinaabe Spiritual Center that I started to get involved with, with more and, and um, uh, meeting more Jesuits um, that were not here, like in my community, but that were working in other communities. And then I got involved more on a larger scale, right? with the Jesuits, so I, I have a long working relationship with the Jesuits. As you said, the Jesuits have worked with First Nations in Ontario since 1844, and then in the late 1970s, three Jesuits opened um, the Anishinaabe Spiritual Center, um, partially to offer diaconate training programs to the surrounding community. Um, what do you know about you know, what, what the goal of the center was at the time and how this might've been a different approach um, toward how the Jesuits were walking with indigenous peoples before the center opened. Well, <clears throat> that was probably before my day. <laughs> but, you know, according to the documents that I've read, I think it was uh, the Bishop Alexander Carter who had developed a partnership with um, the Diocese of Sault Ste. Marie, the Jesuits and the First Nations people, where he wanted to encourage the people uh, to rediscover their roots and to value their own culture and the beauties of some of their ceremonies and early traditions. So I think this program became a great blessing for the First Nations people because it opened the door for greater involvement and participation and inclusion of traditional teachings and rituals. And I, I know for, for a fact that, I, but this is way much later, eh? around nine, 1990, I think it was, when, when I was talking to the Jesuit that was here, he said, why don't we bring in some of your um, symbols and your culture into the church, you know, and, and start doing things. So that's when we started eh, bringing in, you know, the, the four colors. And uh, then we began with the smudging, um, you know, to burn the sacred medicine. And um, at first it was kind of like, should we be doing that kind of thing? I think, you know, but we just kept in and we kept with the explanation of, the, the medicine, what it was and what it does. And, and so it's well accepted now. Eh? We have the four colors in our, what we call the medicine wheel. And uh, we have yellow in the east, which symbolizes beginning. You know, it's like the beginning of the day. So it, it gives you light, uh, enlightenment. Uh, and then we have... <clears throat> In the south, we have the color red. As if you're also looking at the different people, it symbolizes the our people, you know. And then in the in the west, and we have the color. I was taught the color blue, like for our our nation, the color blue, which is for healing. But the when you look at medicine wheels from other places, sometimes they have black there. So sometimes we use black, and that, for me, that is foundation. And then in the north, then we have the color white, which is uh, purity, 
newness and all this thing. So, uh, so those four colors. And, and so what we did in, in our, in our church and, and also at Anderson Lake, uh, Nishinaabe Spiritual Center, it, we talk about the colors, what they mean. And, um, so that people will be, become more familiar with them, eh? Because I think for a while, um, you know, yet, yet this is what they wanted, like in the, in the goal of the, when they first started, but somewhere along the way, I think the, all these traditions and the, they all, I, I would say that maybe they become forgotten or they weren't included, eh? Until, until one day somebody said to me, how come we don't have any of our traditions, our you know, our colors, or our ceremonies? How come we don't have that anymore? You know, and I said, "Oh, that's right, yeah." So I, because they had, they had given me that um, uh, task of of putting together the agenda for our weekends, our our spiritual weekends. Um, to, and I started to include our, our traditions, eh? so that, and I know some of the people were kind of leery, you know, like because we all we were always told this is wrong, this is, um, you know, you don't do that, you don't talk about it, you know. But to me, like it's very important, eh? so, and I used to ask them. I said, yeah, it's part of our culture. We should know who we are. You know, and what uh, our ancestors gave us. What is it that you would like to learn more about? And so they would give me the list, and I'd make the list of of topics that we would cover, for, like for the next year, right? So, and this is how we we reintroduced all that. Well, and the smudging, we use the the four medicines, and each of those four medicines are also located in that medicine wheel. So we have tobacco in the East, tobacco that we use like when we're going to speak to somebody, uh, an elder or to the creator, we offer our tobacco and say a prayer and say, this is um, my offering. I would like to ask or whatever. I'd like to talk to you about whatever. <clears throat> and then in the South, we have cedar, and that cedar we use um, in some of our ceremonies. We put it on the ground. Um, we use it for cleansing. Uh, sometimes we make it into a tea, especially for somebody who is grieving. And my, my uncle taught me that anybody who's grieving, you make a tea out of cedar and you have them drink that every day. Um, we also use cedar when somebody dies and we give a cedar bath, do a cedar bath to the body, you know, as a, as a preparation for them to go on their journey. In the West, we have the um, sage. And again, that's a, uh, a medicine for cleansing. And um, this one we use mostly in, in our, when we do the smudging here. In the north, we have the sweet grass, which represents uh, Mother Earth's hair. And we braid it and we make a little braid. So we take the, you know, a bunch of the sweet grass and we divide it into three and we, we braid it. And each of those strands 
one, uh, one will represent the body, another one will represent the mind, and then the third one, the spirit. And it's the coming of those two, of those three together for balance. So those are the, <clears throat> the medicines we use. And then, and then we offer our tobacco into um, a shell. It's a gift from the waters. And we, we offer that tobacco to, you know, let's say, Creator, um, you know, you, you say what you want to do and you ask the Creator to be with you, you know. And then as that's burning, if we're using an eagle feather, um, I do have some things here. <laughs> some visual we take aids. That visual aids, yeah. And I have my, uh, I don't know if you can see that, the little shell. Yeah. Right there is the shell. Yeah, it's, is that a clam shell? It's... Um, <clears throat> this one, I think, is, yes. This one I, I got from Prince Edward Island. Oh, but wow. I have another one. It's a great big, great big uh, shell that I use for, like when I do um, general uh, smudging in the church or where, <clears throat> wherever. Then I, I usually do a, a little prayer. Um and I teach other people, you know, I said, okay, so I wash my hands. I take the smoke and I wash my hands. They cleanse my hands for whatever wrong I may have done. And I want clean hands to be able to do good work. And my prayer changes depending on the situation. Eh? And creator, creator, I take the smoke and I, I take my glasses off because I didn't wash my face with my glasses on this morning. I take the smoke. I wash my eyes to clear, clear my eyes so that I will have good vision, be able to see what I have to see today. Creator God, I take the smoke and I wash my ears so that I may hear, maybe hear your word in the scripture or hear what people are saying so that I know how to respond. Creator God, I take the smoke and I wash my mouth so that I only speak good words. Because if I say something back, I can't take it back. Once it's released, it's out there. So all, you know, all good words only. Great God, I take the smoke and I wash my mind. Clear my mind of any negative thoughts I might have. That I will have just good thoughts. Great God, I take the smoke and I wash my whole body. To take away any negative energies that I may be carrying. Creator God, I take the smoke and I wash my heart. Because sometimes we have heavy hearts, depending on what it is that we are facing in our lives. And Creator God, I take the smoke and I wash my spirit so that my spirit is open and receptive. And anything, anything negative, I put on that smoke. And I take my feather. That represents the eagle, the sacred bird who flies the highest. Because, and then I'll ask that eagle to take all those things that I got rid of 
to take them up to the creator to cleanse and so that I will be given renewed energy. It strikes me that, you know, as, as you're describing this practice, um, that there are some similarities to, for example, a Catholic practice of reconciliation um, and in a, a preparation and an openness um, to then go back out into the world. Um, and you mentioned earlier um, that you are a member of the diocesan order of, of service, which is this um, totally unique um, order to um, your diocese, but that also your indigenous practices are very important to you. So I'm curious how you have found the intersections of both Catholic tradition and indigenous tradition um, and what that has meant for you. Because I was raised as a Roman Catholic, my father was a very uh, spiritual man, very religious. He took us to church every Sunday. And because we didn't have a vehicle, we used to go by boat. And we take our picnic with us so that we'd have a picnic after mass. Eh? And because um, I stayed home an extra two years, before I went to residential school, I waited till my younger sister, the one I was adopted, until she turned six so that the two of us could go. And um, so I had more time to spend with my, with my mother and my father. And my father was very, um, I think he, he, um, he taught us a lot of things, eh? And he was a, uh, a great influence on my life. And I think it was his great faith that played a great role in building my own personal faith. He gave us that foundation of the teachings, of living the, the sacred teachings. Uh, sometimes we call them the seven grandfather teachings. And, um, and prepared us to walk our, uh, to do our earth walk. Uh, he taught us a way of life. And those seven grandfather teachings, uh, he never mentioned them by name when we were children. You know, it's just what we did and what we were supposed to do. Uh, <clears throat> it wasn't until much later that I thought, mm, okay. And as I talked to other elders and medicine people, then I, I found out that these teachings had names, eh? Uh, respect, humility, honesty, compassion or courage, truth, wisdom, and unconditional love. So that's how we lived in that traditional way. And um, I'm glad I had the extra two, two years at home. To, and I think all those teachings were ingrained in us. And later on, when I became a nurse and that, and all the trauma, and everything that I saw, these are the things that helped me, you know. Um, and so I think they helped me to find that pathway for healing. And I had already integrated them into my own living, uh, everyday living, to achieve balance, harmony, and well-being. And so, you know, I had learned that we can use these gifts 
because they'll nourish us, give us strength, give us a direction that we're, where we're going in life, and that we find that meaning of the circle of life. And I think all this helped me to enrich my spiritual life. It has led me to deeper understanding, appreciation, and respect for the riches of, of my culture. The meaning of symbols uh, greatly enhanced meaning of scriptures, and they strengthened my special relationship with God, our creator. A large part of the work of the Anishinaabe Spiritual Center, and I think your work is also educating the community and, and highlighting these intersections. So what, what does the work of the center look like today? What are some things that are going on there right now? In our um, ministries program, where we meet once a month, uh, we usually start on a Friday night and all, all day Saturday. And uh, we do it from September to June. And um, different people come, not always the same ones, but basically we're hoping that um, the young ones especially, if they can go through the program, they can also become DOS or deacons later on. Eh? But right now, it's kind of like, People are not totally committed. You know, maybe they're afraid. I, I think that's what it is. I think it's fear, really. You know, so I try and, and talk to them about, um, about the program and what we're trying to do, you know, try to encourage younger people to come. Find out, you know, to, it, it'll help them in their own fate. And we named our program Damgong Bimit Cod Winning. It's in the language, and Damgong is calling, and Bumikad winning is um, service, calling to service. So we want people to go back to their communities and, and help in whatever way that they, that they need to help the community, either by being a reader or becoming a Eucharistic minister and all that. You mentioned that the you think that there's some fear associated for some people with with the program where do you think that fear is coming from well it's just being um a lot of people say i'm not worthy i'm not worthy i don't feel worthy to help you know so i think it, to maybe dispel that fear is have them become involved like on a gradual basis, you know, like do this little bit, do this, you know, and do this little task. And, you know, um, I, I have asked one, one of the ladies in my community, I said, you know, I said, I'm getting old. And I said, I need somebody to take over. Do you think you can help me? And then they'll say yes. And then, but sometimes it, because they have other commitments and then they they drop out, eh? So we just need to, I suppose, emphasize the commitment and 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 helping, eh? And I, I want them to help me because, yeah, I don't know how much longer I can do the things, you know. Um, 
So I want the, I want the, the people to come and help me. You've mentioned a few times as well, um, DAS, the D- Diocesan Order of Service, um, which you've been a member of since 2000, um, and which you're hoping some members of the, um, the Spiritual Centers program might progress on to. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this order? It's totally unique, um, as we said earlier, to your diocese, um, and what, what some of your duties are as part of this order. This is the program that we're doing, the Damgong Bimikad winning. Uh, it's a four-year program where they will get, uh, you know, indigenous theology, some of the other different theologies and uh, scripture, you know, it'll help them in that four years. And then they have a mentor and a spiritual director and then uh, they get involved in the community. And... Um, I think um, I know when I, when I was mandated, um, the paper that I that was given to me that by Bishop Jean Louis Plouf, it said to serve the people of God in the native sector diocese of Saint Marie, carry out the ministries of acolyte, which is an attendant or assistant, and lector, and to assist in other ministries necessary to the life of the church community. So I have found that as a DOS, I, I do almost the same work as a deacon, except I'm only mandated, a deacon gets ordained. So I can't do marriages, and I can't do baptism using the oils, but I can do the water. So those are, uh, you know, so I get involved with liturgy preparation, doing the sacristan duties, you know, like you have to wash the chalice and, and the, um, the, the linen cloths that are used. Um, I do the sacramental preparations uh, for baptism, confirmation, first communion, but there are others who are doing those now. I don't have to do that. Uh, but I've done my own grandchildren. Um, I was a lecturer. I don't do that too much now. I always invite somebody else to do that. Music ministry, I'm still doing music ministry because we are so lacking in musicians. So I, I play the organ, but I only do it in my church. I don't go to the other churches. So, And sometimes I do it on when we have our, our sessions, our ministry sessions. We visit and minister to the sick at home in the hospital or in the nursing home. Um, you know, and we do wake services when somebody dies. So we have a wake service. Uh, now with the COVID, there's only one night, one night wake service and then the funeral. Um, when there's no COVID, then we usually do two nights and, and then the funeral. Uh, and that's our biggest ministry because we have maybe 50 deaths per year or a little bit more. And um, sometimes I, I assist at the funeral sometimes um, and also at the cemetery, but I've done a few, a few funerals and a few burials um, when there is no priest in a certain community, not this community, but other communities 
um, it's usually a funeral director. She says, why don't you get hold of Rizella? You know, so they call me and then I end up going to that community to, to do the, the wake service and also the funeral. I've also been involved in doing memorial services. You know, when people um, have died and they usually do a 10-day memorial service or a year. And so they'll ask me to come and do the prayers and that. Um, sometimes I get asked to do the opening prayers at certain events in the community. I did the Lenten Stations of the Cross this past year um, virtually. And I used Leland Bell's paintings uh, from the book called Bidabin, First Light of Dawn. And I did it in Ojibwe plus the English, uh, the title I would, I would do in the language and the prayers would be in the language. And then uh, at the Easter Vigil, we, we light a sacred fire and we have people offer tobacco uh, before we go into the church and to light the candles. Eh? Uh, I also do preparation of the sacred medicines at the Easter Vigil um, to prepare the, um, the tobacco the cedar, the sage, and the sweet grass to be used in our four churches. So I prepare all that. And then the, the, the DOS or the person from that community will take all that and, and use that for, for the next, uh, next year. In the past, before COVID, I used to do the Easter Sunday sunrise ceremony, which is very important. Uh, that I've learned because on Easter Sunday morning, the sun has to rise at a, up to a certain level. And if you look at the sun, it'll dance. It'll, it'll make a little cross, eh? So that, that's, that's why I do that uh, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning sunrise. That's incredible. What does it mean to you as an Indigenous woman to have this kind of position of leadership within the church to be able to participate um, in your in your grandkids' baptisms or in in wakes um, and these other leadership positions. You know what what has that meant for you and and your community by extension? I think my community or <clears throat> the big community the the community at large, I should say. Uh, they've all come to know me, and uh, they expect me to be there whenever something happens, you know, like someone dies uh, tragically, you know, they come knocking on my door no matter what, at what hour of the night, you know, to come be with the people, to smudge them. Um, or if they're having a memorial service, they'll, they'll call me to go. And so, um, and I think it's, it's a good way to, to serve the people. Um, because I want the people to really come to know Jesus, eh? And uh, usually, like at the, the, the reflections I do at the week services, um, somebody always comes up later, and they'll say, they'll add something that, how it touched them, you know? And I think, I say to myself, I said, well, if, if, uh, if I can only touch one person, if I touch one person, then I've done, I've done my work. 
So this weekend, um, October 11th, is Indigenous Peoples Day in the U.S. It's also known previously as uh, Columbus Day. Um, and for you and for many Canadians, um, it's Thanksgiving. Um, and I think these holidays confront North Americans with very ugly and, and painful histories of colonization and of the treatment of Indigenous peoples. Um, and you mentioned yourself that you and your family members attended residential schools, um, which were schools where Indigenous children were sent in the US and Canada um, to essentially assimilate um, into American Canadian white culture. Um, and I think this, this has very much been a topic in the news recently, um, particularly after the discovery of 215 remains um, at a former Kamloops residential school in, in Canada. And you wrote after this discovery, um, quote, these children are talking and teaching us answers which lie in our cultural teachings and spirituality. Um, so as someone who attended a, a residential school and has very much kind of walked um, with your community um, and the Jesuits since then, what, what have you learned in the past few months as, as these discoveries have come to light and as these conversations have grown more urgent? This is where I have the hardest time. Even though we were not removed, my family to go to residential school. Reason why we went was the part of the community where we live. There was no school bus, so we would have had to travel to another community. And so I think it it was that that made that that this that you know decision decision was made that we would go to residential school. Um, now I know that uh, I know how how my family was affected by residential school. how one did not want to be known as indigenous. So she never taught her children the language. Or that they were indigenous. And I found out because she didn't live in the community. She had married and lived elsewhere. If my parents wanted to visit her, she would tell them, come 
after dark. Because she didn't want people to see that her, her parents were indigenous. I have a brother. I had a brother. Two brothers had gone to residential school. Uh, when they came back home, they got into alcohol. And then, uh, I don't know what happened there, but anyways, he ended up changing religion. He even became a minister in that religion. And he got sick, he was in the hospital. So I called and then I asked for his room. So this voice answered. It was a little voice, a little boy voice that answered the phone. So I asked for him and he says, this is me. I thought, well, why, why is he speaking in a little boy voice? Anyways, I had gone to Alberta for something probably that following week. And we happened to have this lady come and talk to us. And she, her presentation was on soul pain. And um, so I went and spoke to her after and I was telling him, my experience of my brother hearing him in that little boy voice. And she said, <clears throat> something must have happened to him when he was a little boy. And he left that little boy behind. Now you have to work with him to bring, bring up that little boy. But he was restless in the hospital. And um, then he decided he was going to uh, ask to get off the respirator. And that was something I couldn't take. In my mind, I was thinking, why, why, why does he want to do this? Anyways, he, he was taken off the respirator. He lived for five days. But I never, I never managed to work with him, except the one time he did ask me to pray. So I asked for my, my bag to go, you know, to be brought out of the car. And I went through the prayers with him. And then somebody said, did you see the monitor and the readings, you know, his blood pressure, his oxygen or his oxygen level and his respirations, how they all came to be, I guess, lowered and, and more steady as you were praying? I said, no, because I wasn't watching that. I was busy praying. That's the only part that, that I did to help him. 
even working in the communities as a, as a community health nurse, is to wonder why so much trauma? Why are people suffering? And I think these are the people that have gone to residential school or the, the uh, effects of residential school, you know. So we have a lot of healing to do. Thank you. Thank you for yes. sharing. How do you feel that your faith has maybe helped you navigate some of this spiritual pain you're talking about, especially, you know, considering many residential schools in both the U.S. and Canada were run by religious orders, you know, how do the different aspects of your faith um, help you process this pain? I think we have to look beyond, beyond that person, you know, and maybe look at them as, I don't know, maybe they weren't meant to be in that position they were carrying issues that were never resolved. Maybe they were um, not mentally well or physically well or spiritually well. They didn't have that full wellness. So we have to look at them as human beings who made the mistakes. You know, so <clears throat> I try hard now to work with, um, I suppose, the Jesuits. And I tell them exactly how I feel how to approach the people, what they need to focus on. And I said, and I tell them, you have to listen. Listen with your eyes, your ears, and your heart. Because sometimes I find that people don't really listen. You know, the uh, or they're not there, they're off somewhere else, you know, and, and then after you're finished talking, they'll say, well, what was that that you said? You know, so, okay, you, weren't you listening? <laughs> Shake them up, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and I always pray, you know, pray for the priests and you know, that they will look after themselves, physically, mentally, spiritually. Because I think it's important, you know, because they have, they have a very important job to do, to bring people closer to Jesus, you know. I said, you have to make Jesus more attractive if you're talking to the people. And I tell them the story a dream that I had. I was in my community, in my, in my parish church. Lots of people outside. 
and everybody's talking, visiting, you know, and all of a sudden I look at the church, and just above the doors, there's this figure standing there, all in white. And I looked, well, yeah, I know who that is. That's Jesus, you know. I could see his face, you know, and his squared, squares jaw, his dark beard, you know, dark brown, dark brown hair. But his clothes were white. I so wanted the people to see him. And as quietly as I could, I said, no, which means like, kind of look, you know, and uh, as soon as I said that, the figure disappeared. But I shared that with people, you know, I said, I have seen him, he is, he is around. Maybe it's not the right time for you to see him, but I have seen him. I said, and I always tell them to, I said, I've been to the land of the creator. We're doing meditations, and they said, okay, we'll go to the land of the creator. I said, okay. So I went, but I didn't see the creator, but I felt that presence. It was so sacred. It was way out all around me, you know. And then I heard the voice, you can come back now. Oh, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to remain in that space. You know, and I share that with people now at the, at the week services. You know, I said this this is where this person is. We don't want to call them back. We want them to stay there to enjoy that presence of the Creator. That sounds like such an incredible and and powerful experience. Looking maybe forward. What actions do you want to see Canada and even the U.S. take to start healing some of these, you know, the, the tears in these relationships between Indigenous communities and, and particularly um, government structures? I think one is acceptance. Accept, like I said, accept me for who I am. So accept the Indigenous people for who they are. That's an important part. To acknowledge the Indigenous people as sacred, precious, a special gift from the Creator. Because when we're babies, we're born, we receive that gift from the Creator. So special, you know. And the other one is respect. It's very important to respect our beliefs, what we believe in, our traditions, our culture, and our language. Respect for the sacred ceremonies also, and respect for the sacred objects, you know, the hand drum, um, the feather, you know. And to respect our indigenous spirituality. I went to Chiapas, Mexico a few years ago to visit ind uh, indigenous people down there. 
and to find out the work of Bishop Samuel Ruiz. And in the communities that we went to, we, we participated in the Mayan ceremony, you know, and so they're smudging in, the, in their directions. Oh, like it was, it was um, part of who I was, you know. Um, and then the other thing that's important is to listen. And like I said, to listen with your eyes, your ears, and your heart. And to remain positive, not, not, none of this negativity. And the other one is to communicate. You talk to the people. Have a dialogue back and forth, you know. And that we walk together. Walk with me. And together we'll hopefully we'll make a difference for our future generations. I certainly hope so. Rosella, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your insights um, and, and your experiences and your work with us. Oh, I hope I, I answered everything that you asked me to. <laughs> more about Rosella's work at the Anishinaabe Spiritual Center, take a look at the links in our show notes. If you're interested in learning more about Indigenous boarding school history, we've linked to a few resources, including a past podcast we recorded with the Director of Truth and Healing at Red Cloud Indian School. U.S. Congress is currently considering a bill that would establish a Federal Truth and Healing Commission on Indian boarding school policy, the first of its kind in the U.S., and the Jesuits have endorsed it. We hope that you will join us in supporting this vital work. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.